something that has gotten your attention. By the way, if you're not getting the emails, uh, that means I don't have your email. So let me know if you're not getting the emails. I did. sa-treasure-island-aol.com. Did you have you checked your email in the last 48 hours? Are you telling the truth? <laughs> Comes from the church. So comes from Jim Howard. Does it? I was trying to keep my name out of it. No, just kidding. Okay. Looks like it should be in spam folder. We sent it through MailChimp, so it's uh, it's a legitimate uh, program that would do it. So I know most of the ones I'm sending out anyway, uh, most of them come through because it tells me that you've opened them. So uh, and don't forget, next week I'll be in Haiti, so if you show up here, you'll be one of a small group, bring your cards, playing cards or something. And uh, so we don't have any class next week, okay? Let's pray, and then, then we'll get started. Father, thank you, for, um, thank you for the chance to spend time together talking about your word. Lord, there are people all over the world that don't even have this privilege, and we are very grateful for that. Thank you for your word. As complex as it is, Lord, it's still a beautiful, incredibly wonderful story of a deep, deep love that you have for us. Thank you for that. In your son's name, amen. Okay, so what's something that stands out to you? Something you've learned, something that's gotten your attention? Three responses, uh-huh. Genesis 3, Genesis, uh, yeah, Genesis 3, um, Genesis 3.10, when God is looking, uh, I think this is a Christophany, a, pre, a pre-existence, pre-incarnation uh, Christ, he appears in the garden and he says, uh, where are you? And, he, and this is Adam speaking. I heard you walking in the garden. So here's what happened. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Those three responses describe life under the entire, the rest of the story of brokenness. So I was afraid, the wrong emotion, the most often repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. So I was afraid. We shouldn't be afraid of God. We should be the opposite. We should run to God and need help and not be afraid of God because we find grace, mercy, and help. So we've got the wrong emotion. I was afraid because I was naked, so he has the wrong understanding of who he is because now his nakedness is viewed in terms of his brokenness and fall. We don't know what it's like to go from uh, perf- 
go from perfectly healthy, normal in every way, and one second later to be uh, to have experienced the fall and all the crushing, crushing feelings that go with it. We live with them every day, and they're normal to us. And so Adam hadn't had that. So his response was that uh, he had a he, his view of himself was not appropriate. I was afraid because I'm naked. Well, we're actually we're actually created to be understood at the deepest level, naked and unashamed, if you will. And that's one of the things that a good marriage should bring to us is that the person that knows you the most intimately uh, loves you anyway. And that's what church should be about, is that uh, we know each other's failings. We know each other's shortcomings. All of us, when we're under stress, the monster comes out. You know, uh, we've laughed about it on staff. They know what I'm like when I'm under stress. I'm not, it doesn't do any good to try to hide it or be ashamed of it. It's a reality of who I am. And so when, when one of my staff members gets under stress and the monster comes out, okay, the question then is, well, how can I help them? You know, I'm not ashamed that that's the case. So, so we should develop. We were created to be known and experienced um, by others in community. And so here, this is uh, this represents a a a view. He's 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 naked and he's ashamed of that, and he shouldn't be. He shouldn't be. That's what the fall brought. That that just total. Uh, slide right down into destruction. So that develops into the third thing is the wrong strategy. So I hid. And that's what we do from then on. Uh, whenever we whenever we are in trouble, shame is almost always one of the first things we feel and we hide. It's very easy to hide from people and to hide from God. So you think about what God has placed in our life to help us on the journey of transformation into the image of Christ, right? We have his indwelling spirit, God himself, we have his word, which gives us words of life. Peter calls them words of delight. And we have other people which help us. Proverbs chapter 20 talks about the deep parts of the person require another person to draw them out. It's so complex, and because it feels normal to us, we don't do a very good job of drawing it out ourselves. We need others to do that. So community, safe community, is one of those, those three things. So what happens when we sin? We usually isolate ourselves from God out of shame. We usually don't spend a whole lot of time in the Word, enjoying the words of life. And we certainly don't go tell others, hey, I just sinned. <laughs> I just slept with another woman. We never go say that to each other, right? The risk is way too great. So we, we joke about it, but it's easier to tell the bartender down the street than to tell another Christian about our sin, right? It should be the other way around. We should be the safest people right here where somebody can come and say, I'm in trouble. Well, we can help. We know what to do. You know, we know how to help. It's interesting. We have a young girl who you don't know. I, I most of you don't know. She's been coming here, and uh, her her parents called me uh, real early last week. She was uh, arrested for uh, driving while intoxicated, and she's been out of jail. So her dad talked to her on the phone while she's in jail, and he said, "They don't live here. Is there somebody I should call?" And she said, "Yeah, call Pastor Jim. He'll know what to do." you realize what a triumph that is? That's not a boast about me. What a triumph it is that a young person's first response would be call somebody at the church. They'll know what to do. Isn't that great? 
one of my best friends when we were elders together, his 15-year-old, 16-year-old daughter got pregnant. And, of course, he was traumatized by that, rightfully so. He was a dad. And I said, let, Nathan, I said, let us talk through it. So I, I said, when you found out you were pregnant, what was your first thought? He said, i got to go find my dad. He'll know what to do. Isn't that what we want? We don't want to hide. And that's our tendency is to go hide. And so um, it hides and it begins to grow and becomes cancer almost inside us. And if, if people can't come talk to us, where and find redemption, where are they going to go? So those three things in my mind capture the rest of the story of brokenness. You see, some form of that can win out. Thoughts, other thoughts, questions, comments, things that stand out to you. Well, Paul talks about that in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1, that uh, God has made it evident to every single human. No human has an excuse. None. We tend to think of uh, evangelism and and missiology, missionary work, we tend to think of it as as a statistical game. People have a better chance of learning about Christ in our country because Christianity is so prevalent. It's not true. There's no statistical game with, uh, with God. Every single human is without excuse. Every single human has what they need to pursue God. And the image that's used several times in the Old Testament is God says, if you search for me, I will be found by you. And he has this picture of he's going to plant himself right smack in front of you, and, he's gonna, and you're going to find him. God has all kinds of means of communicating truth to people. And Noah's a good example of that, I think. Saint Job's a good example of that. We don't have we don't have a story of how Job. How did he find out? You know. So, so I'm a big fan of. We are faithful. We live out our faith. But uh, this is God's issue. It's not. It's more than God. It's more God's issue than our issue. Think about it. When uh, when you come across a stranger, when I come across a stranger, I have several thoughts right away. Is my theology driving the way I relate to people? Okay, here's what I know instantly when I meet a stranger. Number one, God loves them infinitely more than I do. That's a given to me. It's automatic. Number two, he's been involved in their life in much, much more significant and deeper ways than I'll ever be. If they were my best friend and we never separated for the rest of our life, I still wouldn't match up with God. And number three, he has a lot more experience with whatever this person's dealing with than I have. So I can really relax. I can. That's how I feel. So... I love meeting people that are strangers. I just love it. I love it when they give you the eye roll. You've heard me say that. When they say, I'm a pastor. Eh, they give you the eye roll. I saw that. <laughs> I have fun with that because it allows me to get into an honest conversation with them. I saw that eye roll. What happened that you rolled your eyes when I just told you I was a pastor? You know, where'd you come up with that conclusion? We got the same data. <laughs> and it's amazing how people open up and start to talk. 
just get them in a conversation. So it's, but my premise is that God is already at work in their life and it's not an accident that they've wandered into my life for a period of time, anywhere from 60 seconds to years. That's not an accident. So I'm just going to enjoy it. If they're not interested in Christianity, no big deal. I'll just move on. It's their issue, not mine. I already know my faith. So I tell the high schoolers, it doesn't matter what I think. What do you think? And the same with you. I already know what I think. My faith isn't the one in question anymore. What's yours? What do you believe? And that's really, it's really amazing when you tell a high schooler that. It's really, it's real faith. What are you going to preserve it? How are you going to handle it? You know, Noah Glasgow, some of you know the Glasgow's. Noah, Noah and I, we're just, we're pretty close. We get together all the time when he's in town. We have for a couple years. And um, he told me when he's searching for colleges, my number one priority is the, is the soccer scholarship. I said, great, great. So he's going around visiting colleges and we're processing together. He comes back one day and he goes, I found the college I want to go to. Sweet. What a great, a great realization. Which one is it? He goes, Azusa Pacific out in L.A. He goes, Hershey College. I said, great. What kind of scholarship do they offer you? He says, oh, they haven't offered me a scholarship. I didn't even have a chance to try it for the team. And I said, well, what made you decide you wanted to go there? He goes, I walked on the campus and I felt a faith that was there that was energizing to me. And I said, you realize you just took your first significant important step to adulthood. You identified one value, but you lived out another. And faith won out. Right? So he has a chance to, to be on the soccer team. He's not sure he wants to do it now. There are more important things that have come into his vision. That's adulthood. He told me we were having coffee. I was out. I went out to L.A. and visited him, and we were having coffee. And he said, man, this transition to adulthood, it's hard work. And I go, yeah, it is. You're doing great. All right? I don't have to worry about him. And think about it with your children. You raise them the right way. This, uh, this young lady that was in trouble, I talked to her, and I also talked to her parents. And I said, all right, let's think about all the roles that everybody plays. The police play a very important role. They got you, and uh, they keep the, straight, the streets safe for the rest of us. They did their job. Your parents, you need to let your parents be your parents. They're frightened because of what just happened to you. Because it's like, is this the tip of an iceberg? Is there something going on in your life that they don't know about? And you're raising a Christian home, and it's terrifying for parents when this happens to them. So call your mom and dad and say, I'm sorry, I love you. My faith is real. That's what I tell them. And I said, first of all, this is what they feel. I just asked you, this is what they feel. And she says, yeah, I don't ever want to go through this again. I said, praise God, this is going to be in your past. It will be a memory soon. It's not the end of the world. Call your parents and tell them your faith is real. Let them be parents. And if they, if they lecture you or chastise you, that's okay. That's what parents get paid to do. Let them be parents. I'm a pastor. I get paid to help them think about what is fitting God's plan. And then you got the judge. You haven't even seen the judge yet. He gets paid to make sure you never do this again. So he might yell at you. I don't know what he's going to do with you, but let him do play his role. Everybody has a role that God brings into your life and let them do it. And she said, okay, I've never thought about that. So just let your mom and dad be mom and dad. They need to know that you're safe and that you still love the Lord. So call their parents up. That's what she told them. Ah. So <coughs> you can relax with your children. God knows far better what to do with any single person you meet. It's not a statistic against you. 
children of God. We've served the one true living God. And he is actively pursuing and cares about every human life. Thoughts, other thoughts, questions? Okay. A short review, if I put the right one up. Remember we talked about, by the way, I just put it at 9,000 or 8,000 years there. That just is what Genesis 1 through 11 covers. I have no idea how long it is. I'm perfectly comfortable if it's millions or billions of years. I'm not a scientist. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. But I don't think the Bible, as a theologian, the Bible doesn't tell me this. So I don't have an opinion on shorter, younger, older, middle earth, any of those. I have an opinion on what God was doing with the ancient people when he spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai in 1450 B.C. about creation. So uh, I'm not trying to give you my sense of how old the earth is here. But what I want to do is show you how far back we can go with our theology that I know of right now. It may be much older than that. I have no idea. Do I think that? Is this being recorded? <laughs> no, I don't think it's seven 24-hour days. Does it bother me if it is? Absolutely not. It could very well be. Uh, I, I don't think... I don't think the ancients were asking the questions that we ask regarding science and all of that. What they were asking, which was common among the ancient peoples, was creation meant to them God was, the gods established purpose and order. So they never even conceived the ancient people of having gods that they would emulate. They wanted gods that they could basically appease. They didn't want the gods ticked off at them. And so the gods respond, everybody has a role to play. The gods' responsibility was to keep the earth moving, keep everything together. That was their job, okay? So when you look at the ancient creation stories, Genesis 1 follows some of those patterns of showing, I think its primary purpose is to do two things, to show that God was building something in order, okay, which the ancients, and I think it's appropriate, thought of as a, cosmic temple so all the way through all the way into revelation we have temple imagery the earth is his footstool psalms talk about his bedchamber, his his room where he his private room is above the earth what the israelites eventually became to be called the third heaven and so they pictured this this all of creation was a cosmic temple god created the temple he built it and then he rested and we talked about that took on so that was the primary two purposes that was one of them the other one is to show that uh, God alone is God and we are the we are the crowning moment of his creation everything was was created for our benefit for two reasons to enjoy and have a place to work to fulfill our creative divine purpose and the other one is for for God to give us another crop if you will to teach us about him and his world so both are true so we should enjoy this earth. We should take care of it. And we should learn about that. So if you've never been outside, I find it hard to believe up here, but it's possible. Go outside, go for a walk, go skiing, go hiking, go, go do something and just reflect on, on how incredible God is to make all of this. Jude and I were in her office yesterday just laughing at, we were, we were trying to think of the craziest animals we could think of. Put your staff up, I'm talking to the board. We're thinking of the craziest animals and wondering, 
what was God thinking when he said, I'm going to make a little animal with all these prickly things on it so nobody touches them? Or one that's black and white with stripes and stinks, at least to me, right? <laughs> and she talked about one of her dogs that was a, a sheep herder type dog. I'm not, a, I'm not a big animal person, so I don't know all that. But she said, every time we let him out, he went and find, found dung to roll in. He was not happy unless he didn't smell like himself, right? And I thought, oh, I could just picture God just dying laughing, saying, let's make a, let's make a dog here that doesn't like the way they smell, so they're always going to roll themselves in dung so they smell like something else, right? I think that's hysterical. So, so I, I think we get, we get wrapped around the wrong axle, to use a metaphor, when we start focusing on that, that piece of it. I do believe God created the earth out of nothing, but not because he wanted to, because of Hebrews 11.2. By faith, we believe God created the earth out of nothing. Pretty straightforward there. I'm not sure. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty convinced that's not Genesis trying to explain to us why that happened. It's got a much deeper purpose. But am I, am I, am I stuck on that? No, I, I mean, if it's a six-day little creation, I'm fine with that. I have no problem with that. That's why I said I don't have an axe to grind or a dog in that fight or whatever metaphor you want to use. So Genesis 1 through 11 basically takes us from the beginning of the creative, of creation uh, up until redemption. That was the point there. Okay? Then you have the period, and this is what we've been working on here, this section right here. Now, the Pentateuch covers from 1450 earlier, roughly, but it's all written right here in this time period. So it's important to remember when something is written in the Bible is not necessarily related to what it's covering. So the Bible was written over 1,500, 1,600 years, but it covers a much bigger span of time than that in its work. That is a whole study, a whole discipline in itself, <coughs> looking at sources and how they came about. How did we know all that? You know, how did Moses, how was able, if Moses wrote Deuteronomy, if he wrote the entire book of Deuteronomy, again, I'm not, I'm not going to die on that sword, but if he did, which is tradition, how did he know to write about his own death? Right? Furthermore, Moses wrote that Moses was the most humble man on the earth. I think that's hysterical. <laughs> I read that. Moses writes that Moses was the most humble man on the earth. I just think that's just, it makes me laugh that God might have him do that. Or John, perhaps, in the Gospel of John, calls himself the beloved disciple. <laughs> The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he doesn't call himself John. If John wrote it, I just think that's really wonderful how God subdues characters to get the story to blossom, if you will. Any other thoughts? Okay, let's get back to Exodus because we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. <coughs> uh, Exodus chapter 12 is the Passover. Let me just say a couple of words. We're not going to read through these passages because we'll run out of time really fast. We'll never make it through Exodus. But I have some thoughts about the Passover. Okay, you know the basic story. They're enslaved in Egypt. God is uh, going to the final plague. God is going to kill the firstborn of every family that doesn't put the blood on the doorpost. Okay? But when you start reading the details you find out that they were to take a baby lamb on the 10th day and sacrifice it on the 14th day. Now, you take a baby lamb, uh, a young lamb, into your home with your children for four days. What happens? 
you start to develop an attachment to it, don't you? And so what, what God is doing is putting each family in a position to make this a true sacrifice. So they bring the lamb into their family, says Exodus 12, four, and four days later they sacrifice it. It says they were to care for it. Uh, in Hebrew, that's emphasizing the need to watch over it, protect it, and take care of it. Treat it with honor, in other words. They were to put the blood of the slain lamb on the doorpost. Then they were to eat the Passover meal. They were to eat it expectantly with their clothes on, ready to go. That symbolized we're ready. We're a people that are ready to go. That's what it was designed to do. And it's a statement. Passover is a statement about God. He is over all the gods, and he will pass over the sins of his people. Whoever decides to fulfill the promise, I mean, the, the responsibility to spread the blood, he will pass over those sins. So the language that's used of Israel coming out of Egypt is language of redemption. It's language used later on to describe the, what it looks like to be redeemed, what we refer to when we use the language of saved. Okay. So when they came out of Egypt, the nation as a whole had demonstrated faith. That's all God required of them was to demonstrate faith. So they came out as a redeemed people group. That's the story of Exodus. Then when you get to, and we are going to look here, when you look in Exodus 19, so we're now uh, at the beginning of the third month, Exodus 19, and so we're at the base of Mount Sinai. Let me go to the, uh, uh, nope, that's Abraham. Let me back out of this. at the right one. I'm way ahead of myself here. I think that's it. Yep. Uh, okay. This is one of the maps that you have. You don't have one. There's some extras back there. Okay. So they leave the land of Goshen, and they cross the Red Sea right here, enter the desert of Sin and uh, the, the desert of uh, Rephidim, and then they come down to Mount Sinai, which is right here at the base of the Sinai Peninsula. So it's taken them about two months to get there. So in Exodus 19, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out of, from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the base of the front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you out, and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, this is a critical verse in biblical theology. It's repeated almost in its entirety by Peter in 1 Peter. This lays out the, um, what God is about to do here. If you obey me fully, there it is. 
Obedience is part of serving the Lord. Don't ever think it's not. It always is. Um, And you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. So they would become God's special people. Although the whole earth is mine, we shouldn't forget that either. The whole earth belongs to the Lord. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that he speaks through the Israelites. All right. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those two verses talk about what their role is in God's redemptive plan. Okay? When we talk about you are a kingdom of priests, and Peter uses the same language, we are a kingdom of priests of this earth. The first question we should ask is to look around and say, who are we priests on behalf of? A priest is never a priest on their own behalf. Never. So the language that God uses here, which is later adopted and expanded in the New Testament, prevents us from looking at ourselves. Okay, God says, I will make you a holy nation. I will do that. So we've talked about that, that the law, remember the basic purpose of the law was to point the way. That's really what it means. The Torah means a pointing or to point the way. Because in a world that's dark, filled with superstition, that God's all over the place, God erupts into our world, if you will, and begins to speak, and he gives us ideas of what he wants. We're going to talk about that in the rest of the night tonight, Leviticus and all of that. He begins to address it. So the law was a real gift in a dark period of time because God said it's real simple. Here's what I want you to do. You know, do this. If you have a sore, go down to the priest, and the priest will take a look at it. And if it's a certain color, he's going to quarantine you from the rest of the camp so you don't spread it. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We're going to move you over here until it's healed. And then we'll bring you back into the camp. Okay? So a whole bunch of the law has to do with just simply let's keep everybody healthy. But another whole part of the law is to make them holy. And what that means is Okay, you're going into the land and you look pretty much like the Canaanites and the Israelites and I mean the Egyptians and everybody else. So here's all my laws. So we read a law and all of a sudden we look different. So don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Really? Well, that's a Canaanite practice. Let's don't do what the Canaanites do. Okay, great. That's what the Christians in Nepal do. They will not be uh, cremated because that's a Hindu practice. Not that they have a theological conviction against it. They don't want to show the Hindus that they look the same as them. They want to be different. So they won't be cremated. So you look different. Okay, well, don't do this. Don't mix uh, wool and whatever it is, two types of material together. Okay, now they look a little bit more different than the Canaanites. Don't do this. Now they look a little bit more different than the Canaanites. Don't do this or do this. Now they look a little more different. So those laws move them away from make them different than the surrounding nations. That's what the purpose of the law was. And so if you obey my commands fully, then I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation, why, why would he possibly want them to be a holy nation? So that they would draw to them the rest of the world who didn't understand it. So when he begins to deal with the laws of morality, they start to look very different than the surrounding nations. So by making them holy allows them to serve as priests for the rest of the world. If they look just like them, it's hard to be a priest when you're no different. Does that make sense? So by making them distinctly different or holy, 
they can now serve as priests. So Peter comes along and quotes this verse. He says, you are, Dirk, you are a prized possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What happened between here and there? Cross of Christ. Okay, big picture. So now we are a kingdom of priests. God wants us to live out our holy lives because that's what makes us different than the world. You've heard me say there's no banner of flashing lights. God is holy. God is worthy. There's none of that. We are his primary product. And if we choose not to live holy lives, we look just like the rest of the world, then we can't serve as priests. So it's very important, all those little details spread throughout the text, do all things without grumbling and complaining, love your neighbor as yourself, serve one another, carry one another's burdens, forgive one another. You know, love doesn't hold an account of wrong, so don't you hold an account of wrong. Always clear the slate after every offense and give people, think the best about them. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. As we do those things, the world can't do those and they notice us. When they notice us, now we can fulfill our mission of being priests here. All right? So when this young woman gets in trouble, right, I'm not going to be offended by it. I told her when she came to my office, I mean, she was just sobbing. I said, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not embarrassed of you. It's okay. You know, it's just my dad was here to give me a hug. And I said, well, your dad's not here. I'm not your dad. Can I give you a hug? And she goes, I would like that. And I just put my arms around her and she just sobbed. She sobbed for 20 minutes. And I just let her sob and get it all the energy out. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. All right. I get to serve as a priest, don't I? I'm not saying what she expects me to say. What were you thinking? What were you doing? You know, I didn't even ask her about that. I cared more about not why she did it, but what happened to her faith as a result of the experience. And I just said, is this a gift? It's a gift. It's valuable. It's a gift. God, you accomplish your goals. Okay, your faith is, God elevates you a whole new level. Okay, so that's what's happening here. All right, then he goes on. Moses summoned, verse 7, the elders and told them all that they were going to do. So they said, okay, we'll do everything that the Lord said. So the Lord said, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud, verse 9, so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. So Moses told the uh, Lord what the people had said, that they're going to obey him. And the Lord said, great. Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day. Now they're out in the desert. What does God say? Wash the clothes. <laughs> this is sacrificial. This is costing something, okay, for them to do this. Be, be ready on the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the peoples. Okay, John chapter 2. On the third day, Jesus went to a wedding in Cana. The only problem is it's not on the third day. When you read John chapter 1 carefully, by the time you get to John chapter 2, you're about on the fifth day. So you go back and say, well, Jesus must have done that on the third day. No, he wasn't in Cana. He was in Galilee. He's in a different place. I mean, a di- he's not in uh, Cana. He's in a different place. So. So it literally is not on the third day. So what on earth was John doing when he said on the third day Jesus went to a wedding? Here's the opening. Here's one of those controlling verses. This is where this language begins to appear. What happened at Sinai on the third day? God revealed his glory. So from that time on, when you see the language third day in scriptures, keep your eyes open. You're about to see God reveal his glory. That becomes a code word for God revealing his glory. So 
like our 4th of July. When I say 4th of July, what does that tell you? Liberty, freedom, right? That kind of stuff. So on the third day, Jesus went to a, we a wedding in Cana. And then it says at the end of the chapter, this was the first of his miracles by which he revealed his glory. So the third day, what happened on the third day after the cross? What's that? Right. Now we get all caught up on, well, is it actually the third day? Well, it was part of one day and part of another day. Okay, we missed the point. It's the fulfillment of what happened right here at Exodus. On the third day, God revealed his glory in the fullest form possible, the resurrection of his son. So get, tell the people to get ready. Okay, Verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful there that you do not approach the mountain or touch it or you'll die. Okay, That's what's going to happen. So verse 14, Moses goes down, tells them, wash their clothes, they get ready on the third day. Okay, Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. Now, you've got to picture this. People are standing right at the base of Mount Sinai, but they're not touching the mountain because they know they're going to die. There was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Now, you've got to remember, they had not met God. Realize that. They had seen the demonstration of his power in the plagues, the defeating of the uh, Egyptian army, the separation of the waters and all of that, but they hadn't actually met him. Now they're meeting their God for the first time. They had demonstrated faith in this guy based on his display of power, but now they're meeting him. And look how he introduces himself. Okay, there's thunder, lightning, a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone is trembling. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, so at the base of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. The trumpet grew louder and louder. Verse 19, uh, Moses spoke, God's voice answered him. The Lord descended on top of the mountain, and so on and so forth. And he terrified them. That's how he introduced himself. So you go over to Exodus chapter 20. Verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a great distance. So in, in chapter 19, they're at the foot of the mountain. In chapter 20, they're on the other side of the mountain. What happened? They took off running. They're, they're terrified. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us again or we're going to die. Okay, now that we've heard from God directly, we're done. You do it. What does Moses say? Here it is. This is a controlling verse. Do not be afraid. This defines all of the verses downstream of it about what fear looks like with the Lord. The very first thing he says is, do not be afraid. You've heard me say that that's the most oft-repeated command. We see it everywhere. Do not be afraid. God's not telling you not to be afraid. He's there. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So God did this on purpose, the Israelites, to demonstrate his power so that you will, from now on, live with awe and reverence. My God's bigger than your God. My God's bigger than your God. You have nothing to worry about. Don't be afraid of God. He did this on purpose so that from now on you'd get it. So you would learn what it means to live by faith. So that's what, this is where this idea of reverential awe comes from. It's right here in the text. Okay, that's the story there. You get the Ten Commandments. 
Um, the Ten Commandments are God's provision for life to the fullest. The Ten Commandments set Israel apart from the rest of the nations. By telling us what we cannot do, he's telling us what we can do. That has been my mantra for years. I've asked many pastors along the way, tell me what the rules are, that way I'll know what I can get away with. So it's simple. If you tell me not to do something, I'm a good follower, I'll do it. But if you tell me what to do, that means I can do these other ten things. That's how I live life. Right, Nan? Oh, yeah. When I go into museums or on old cruisers or battleships, I check every door. Right? If it's locked, I'm not supposed to go in there. If it's open, sweet. So when we're walking through art museums, I, I see if the doors are unlocked so I can go in there. Right? That, why not? Here it is, right here. So by telling us what we cannot do, he's telling us what we can do. Therefore, it's very liberating. We don't have to guess. That's the beauty, the grace that comes from the law. Because in every other nation, they didn't have that. Their commands and laws and trying to figure out gods were written on all kinds of divination practices that are strange and, and uh, somewhat offensive to our senses today. Cut an animal in half, take its heart, chop it. They had whole books on it, depending on how it falls open, that'll tell you what the gods are doing. In India, you've heard me say Madurai, they have these big stone elephants, the tallest ones there, and they, they throw these butter pellets at the, go- at the elephant so that it sticks, and then God's not going to be angry with them for a whole year. If it falls off, geez, that's going to be it. We don't have to worry about that. God spoke clearly. So 613 commands, not that many. We've got thousands in our land. By knowing what we can't do, we know what we can do. So it's helping us to understand what life lives like to the fullest. So as long as you avoid the 613, have a blast. Go for it. What do we tend to do in the church? We tend to define faith in terms of security rather than risk. Security by definition, I mean, faith by definition is an exercise in risk. If you're not sure, go for it. Try it. You don't need to be afraid of God. If you're moving down the wrong path, he's going to tap you on the shoulder. Don't need to be afraid of that. But we tend to say, well, we don't want to tick off God, so let's let's pull back and become more conservative and more to put me in place in rules. And I think that's the opposite. I've told many of our high schoolers, look, when you get out, Avoid the big things. Don't get drunk, kill somebody. Don't do drugs and die. Don't have sex and get pregnant. Apart from that, try it. If you're not sure, try it. You can have confidence that the Lord will help you. Surround your, think about the biblical principle. Surround yourself with good people. And listen to them. And if you're moving in the wrong direction, you'll figure it out. It's okay. You're to experience joy. So try things. Go do it. It's great. All right, I'm not going to go through all the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 25, you have uh, God's home, the, the uh, tabernacle. Lots and lots of details about the tabernacle, which I'm not going to go through. I'm just going to give you some thoughts about it. Number one, it was God's earthly dwelling place. Every nation had temples or tabernacles where their gods resided. They would bring food to them there. We see all that language in here as well. So Hebrews tells us that it duplicates an existing heavenly tabernacle. So it gives us a picture of what the heavenly tabernacle looks like. And the key elements of it are very, very important. The veil separating us from God, the Holy of Holies, right? 
God, if you didn't pay him for us, that we didn't stand a chance and be crushed, we would die. Lord, you said to Moses, if I show you my glory, you'll die. So God had to make provision for us to enter into his presence. That was done through Christ. Hebrews writes, so now we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament. This is the first real picture of what it looks like to serve God. And he gave us a model called the tabernacle and eventually became the temple. And so then when we see Christ come, the veil's torn, we now know we have unhindered access to God. This was, we have a system about holiness and we should be, we would be wise to remember this, that God is still holy and still expects us to do things a certain way, to honor him. So its details are repeated twice in Exodus. That tells you how important it is to God. And as Americans, when we want to add emphasis, we say it louder. The Israelites, they just repeated it. Say it twice. We say it twice. It's important. All the details of the, uh, the tabernacle are repeated twice. Um, let's see here. If I want to say anything else about it. Okay, the golden calf. Let me say something about the golden calf. That's Exodus 30, 31, 32, 33 in there. Uh, the, um, <coughs> this is about three weeks after Mount Sinai. So we're talking the end of the third month. So we've been out of Exodus for three, or out of Egypt for three months. Moses goes up after he gets the Ten Commandments, comes back down, says, don't be afraid of God. He goes back up on the mountain. He's up on the mountain for a long time, 40 days. Okay, well, they, they said, we don't know what happened to this fellow. He disappeared. So uh, we want to make, uh, we want to make a God. Well, they don't know how to worship God. They haven't gotten the Old Testament yet. So God hasn't given them the rules on how to worship him. So what do they do? They make a golden calf, a golden bull. Um, and if you read the text carefully, Aaron says, okay, here's your God, O Israel. Wake up tomorrow in the morning and we will worship Yahweh. So the story of the golden calf, actually we should have a little bit of respect for the Israelites because they didn't have any of the rituals yet, hadn't been written. So they resort to the only thing they know how to do. They make an idol. That's what they were taught. That's what they brought out with them, was that idea. Of a, and so there's mixed in into this sin, the sinful response, because there was sin. There was uh, probably orgies going on. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And uh, the, the playfulness, the sexual part of it, they brought with them. And that was sinful, and they had to be punished for that. But in the midst of it, in the heart of it, there is, a, there is a desire by Aaron to lead them the right way, and he doesn't know how to do it. Not yet. So he builds this golden calf. Okay, in the ensuing story, what happens, it's really funny if you read it. Picture a father with a two-year-old. He says, okay, first of all, you know, when he comes down, they realize that God is very angry with them. He says, get rid of all the jewelry and stuff. Take it all off. So they took it all off and began to mourn because the jewelry symbolized an abundant life. God had blessed them. So it's just like you do with your children. You say, take your toys away. Take all the jewelry off. You got all that jewelry, you were slaves, you didn't have it, and you got that three months ago when I led you out of Egypt. The Egyptians gave you their gold, and now you've sinned, so time out. Take the jewelry off. They began to mourn because they recognized that God was punishing them. Furthermore, God said, <coughs> from now on, I'm not going to go up in your midst. I'm going to go over here and put my tent, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. I'm going to put it out here. Okay? So they had their, their tribes, you know, uh, four tribes on each side, and the temple, the tabernacle was supposed to be in the center, symbolizing God's presence with them. 
And he says in Exodus 33, it's not going to happen. Moses, take my tent over there. It's a timeout. It's a massive timeout. They recognize that God was angry and he's not going to go into the, with them. He's not going to be present with them. He's going to go over here and parallel them on their journey. That's what it is. It's a big timeout. So it says, whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting to speak to God, right, the people would all stand at their tents and they're looking over on the horizon because there comes the pillar of fire of God. And God spoke to Moses face to face as he said, man speaks with man, man speaks with a God. So they watch Moses travel straight across the desert up to the other one on one sand dune and on the other sand dune. There's their God over there. And they said they all stood at their tents and they're watching, wondering what God would say. How long are they going to be in timeout? When's God coming back into the presence? So it's a fantastic story when you read it. Okay, now we now know as scripture and theology unfolds that God is present with us everywhere. He has an indwelling spirit. But they didn't know that. They hadn't learned that theology. So when you read Exodus 33, read it that way. So, um, you know the story. Let's see, anything else I want to say here? Um, let's see here. Nope, that's enough for uh, that's enough for Exodus. Exodus is the basic story of them leaving Egypt and uh, and looking at how God treats them. And he really treats them in a sense like little kids because they are. They don't know what we know. Hadn't been written yet. God's teaching. Those all become pictures for us later on of the New Testament. We enjoy God's presence. Do not think for a second that when you sin, you are hiding it, shielding it from God. Don't think for a second. Everything that you do is exposed to God. He sees it all. Hebrews, you've seen that passage. He sees it all. So don't think for a second. So therefore, if in fact, God sees it all, and we sin all the time. Every time you lust after a woman, it takes one. You become an adulterer. You get mad at somebody, you become a murderer. Think about that. Think about the language Jesus used. Jesus took the standard to an impossible level. And we're beginning to see the early pictures of that in this story as God dealt with them and brought them along slowly in their thinking. We're at the other end of the canon, so we have the full picture. So don't underestimate what Jesus said. You've heard it say, not to commit adultery, I tell you, if you've lust after a woman, you have already committed adultery in your heart. First Corinthians 6, don't you know that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Yikes. You've heard it say not to commit murder, I tell you, if you commit, if you are angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. First Corinthians 6, don't you know that murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's easy for camel to go through the eye of uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle, and it's for a rich man to get in heaven. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Probably not. It's impossible for a rich person to get into heaven. The disciples asked the right answer question immediately after that. Then how can anyone be saved? And then they come to the answer. With humans, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. So don't for a second think that you have escaped. You haven't. 
Don't think for a second that God is not paying attention to you. You could not escape apart from grace. By raising it to an impossible level, there is only one option. Paul's not being, he's not being rhetorical when he says, you can't get into heaven because of murderers and adulterers and slanderers and all those things that we do. Think about all the things that are talked about in Scripture. None of those people, Paul says, were in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what you were, but now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been purified, all that stuff. So don't think for a second that you're getting away with it. You're not getting away with it. Not at all. You just have a God who showers grace on you. That's what you have. And we see these early pictures where God is beginning to build this this picture. You will never please God. It is impossible except through grace and faith. That's the only way. So the biggest trap we get into is to think I'm not good enough. At least I'm not seeking his intervention for me. sucked into the trap. It's not true. Alright, Leviticus. Let's talk about Leviticus. Leviticus, uh, the very name implies detail, 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 which Jude says she learned in a catechism. Rules, rules, and more rules. True. The purpose of Leviticus is to explain how to live holy lives and to present acceptable sacrifices to God because God wants us to live holy lives. Why does he want us to live holy lives? Why? Right? There's a more fundamental reason. Why? So we can... Absolutely. He wants us to live holy lives because we are his primary means of revealing his glory to the rest of the world. That's the reason. I don't know about you, but that's motivating to me, that God wants to use me. And so I want to be faithful. And Leviticus is all about this. The instructions are very exacting, and they're detailed. The sacrifices involve bringing the very best without blemish. God wants us to set the standard amongst ourselves really high. He wants us to be a people of faith, a people that know how to live holy lives. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. So the message of Leviticus is a message of grace because you can do it. You can bring the sacrifices. Now remember, every other nation had to figure it out. We didn't have to. God gave us a manual. Here's all the rules. It's only 613. Okay? You can do it. Sounds like a lot. Have you ever seen the IRS law code? I mean, the IRS code? Have you ever seen the code on uh, uh, equal employment opportunity and discrimination? Have you ever gone down and looked at titles? It's like this long on the library shelves of how to not discriminate. You think 613 is a lot? Go look at the Code of Federal Regulations. It's, it's rows and rows and rows and rows and rows. And that's just the federal section. Then you get to the state section. 613 is wonderful. The message of Leviticus is a message of grace. By knowing what you can't do, you know what you can do. And therefore, we know the 613 commands, and we that means that the world is wide open on what we can do. See how it becomes grace when you put it in a different context? No wonder they were excited about the law. 
David, teach me thy precepts, O Lord. Teach me. So Leviticus is part of God's pointing out the way. Remember, we're in chapter 3. It's a five-volume book here. So Israel showed a strong propensity toward waywardness, and Leviticus, the, the Torah, the law, is pointing the way. They kept wanting to wander, and they were always designed to keep them moving in a certain direction. Now think about this. Israel borrowed from their culture. They borrowed their culture from all the surrounding cultures. This isn't a bad thing. They borrowed, for instance, uh, musical instruments. They didn't create musical instruments. Those were all done by the pagan nations around them. Dancing was already in existence by the time we get to the festivals handed down. It's about dancing. Animal sacrifices were borrowed from all the pagan nations. God is using language in the world to help them understand this. The cities in the promised land, they were taken from pagan nations when they got there. He said, you're not going to build your own walls and houses and cities. I'm going to build them for you. When you get there, they'll be ready. All the crops in the promised land were all planted by the pagan nations. Herds in the promised land were all taken from the pagan nations. So God used all the pagan nations to populate and help Israel become a nation. So these activities were all redefined now in Leviticus around this one true God and the one true community. So music, for instance, is now defined in terms of how it honors the Lord and brings joy both to us and to the Lord. So we adopt the instruments, and then God redefines it in Leviticus. He says, here's what it looks like. Here's what dancing looks like. He does want us to enjoy the good life. That's what Jesus said. Come that you might have life to the fullest, right? Abundantly have it now. Dancing is now defined in terms of celebration, not pagan worship. Sacrifice is now defined in terms of how to worship and approach this one true God rather than how to appease the one true God. It's, it's how to enter into a relationship with God. I mean, it's the greatest thing in the world. If you sin, what are you going to do? Wh what are your options? How do you know? And so God says, well, if you sin, just bring an animal. You can re-enter the relationship with me. Does that make sense? If you've hurt another human, make restitution. That's how you re-enter the relationship with that person. So all these pagan practices now start to get redefined, if you will. Um, the cities, the crops, the herds, according to Leviticus, they're all now to be enjoyed as gifts from God. I was in a class at Dallas Seminary, and I, uh, at Dallas Seminary we had to sign a statement saying that we wouldn't drink. We were an alcohol-free school. And so uh, Dr. Ron Allen, um, uh, again, one of the scholars, there's some preeminent scholars written pretty good books together. Somebody asked him in class, what do you think of drinking? Drinking wine. He says, drinking wine sinful. He's an Old Testament scholar. He says, well, hmm, it may very well be a sin not to drink wine. Of course, 200 young seminary students were all going, really? You're joking, right? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. The Bible mentions five gifts that the Lord has given us. Gift of salvation, spiritual gift. Um, he goes on to four, four of them. And he said, the fifth gift in Leviticus, wine, is a gift from the Lord. Do you want to look the Lord in his eyes one day and tell him his gift is sin? In 30 seconds, he changed the theology of 200 students. Then he goes on to say, but the seminary asked me to abstain, and I've agreed to it. They're doing it for financial reasons, not theological reasons, because our donors don't want us to drink, so we're not going to drink. I'm just glad they didn't ask me to give up sex. <laughs> That's what Leviticus does. Uh, we get caught in all the rules and what we forget. 
is that if you didn't have the rules, these come across as grace. That's how John describes it in John chapter 1. Grace upon grace. So Jesus is grace on top of grace. So the rules are actually a means of defining our freedom by telling us what we can't do. Now we know what we can do. Does that make sense? So the whole world is for ours to enjoy and explore. So that's how you should think of Leviticus. Okay, in Leviticus 1, right off the bat, look what he says. very first thing he says uh, he's talking to Moses he says verse 2 speak to the Israelites and say to them whenever any one of you uh, brings an offering to the Lord okay so when you bring an offering to the Lord so right off the bat you have this you have the freedom to do this that's a gift okay this gift is being presented now as a gift when you decide to bring an offering to the Lord then here's the rules and what it looks like anyone could sacrifice now in Israelite community the uh, the individual was the center of community, but out from that sprang everything else. The individual never saw themselves as uh, the individual. They saw themselves as belonging to a larger community structure. Everywhere you turn, they didn't even have the thought of the individual. That's an American concept. I'm going to talk through this when I give you some ideas on this. So the individual was the center of community. In fact, it's true today. Go through and read the Bible and ask yourself the question, if I was on a desert island, read the New Testament, how many of these commands could I obey? Very few. Almost every one requires another human. Love one another. How in the world can you show love in any context if you're by yourself? So what is, what is initiated with the individual finds its confirmation in community. Now we are, we're pretty proud Americans. And so we like to think of my role in it. But you've got to understand, these commands that are given cannot be completed unless you're in community. So the community is absolutely critical to live a holy life. There's no way to carry one another's burdens, forgive one another, do any of those things without being in community. It can't be done. So people say, I find God in the mountains. That's true, uh, but you don't find community unless you think food's a community. You know, You need people. We need each other. That's what we need. And so Leviticus right immediately begins to put all of this in the context of community. We, th- we have glimpses of that all the way through, for example, in Deuteronomy 12. You're not allowed to worship God except at the temple. So worship was defined in Jewish theology of what the community does. They didn't think of it in terms of what the individual does. That's how they define worship. Worship is a community experience. So we have the famous Psalm 42, of which you may remember the older praise song, as the, as, the, uh, uh, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Some of you may remember that. And we've turned that into an individual praise song, I'm searching for God. Go read the whole psalm. And it's written by a leader in Israel who's now in exile. And he says, I remember, O Lord, when I used to lead the throngs of people to the temple to worship you. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee. How long, O Lord, do I have to wait before I can go worship you? We've turned it into the opposite of what Psalm 42 was intended to do. 
The Israelites never conceived of individual worship. It wasn't part of their theological structure. Everything was done in community. Our faith was a community faith. That's why when one of us sinned, the rest of us came running. Tell your tribe your faith. That's an American idea. Don't be fooled. Your faith does not belong to you. It belongs to us. That's how the picture, the, the scriptures paint that picture. You see that from the very beginning. So with sacrifices or corporate acts, you look at the sacrifice of thanksgiving. By the way, I gave you a handout with a table of sacrifices. And in my thoughts, I have uh, just two pages I gave you on just the beginning of understanding the sacrifices. You can read that if you choose to at your leisure. But the sacrifice of thanksgiving, lots of details on how to make that happen. But one of them is you take a bull and you sacrifice it and you have to eat it before you go to sleep. You can't save any of the meat till tomorrow. Right? Is that possible for an individual to do that? It's a big party. Right? They, 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 they thought in terms of community, which lays the foundation for all the New Testament text. So when you offer, you know, God's going to bless me, let's say, with a grandson or granddaughter. I found out one of my children is pregnant, maybe. And I go to you guys and I say, hey, I found out God's just blessed me with a grandchild. I'm going to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, but I can't do it by myself. I need you. In fact, I need about 500 of you to eat this whole animal before the night's over with. So you guys, what do you think? You want to go with me? If nobody wants to go, I'm not going to offer the sacrifice. I can't fulfill it. And you all say, yeah, let's go. So you have a big party. And we celebrate together what God has done in my family. Right? So these details are very important because they reveal, they reveal, they begin to reveal the very heart of what God thinks about uh, his people. We live together. We live together. By the way, one person sins in the Old Testament, you don't deal with it. We all start paying the price. God's not afraid to send plagues, she-bears, send armies to come after us. If we don't deal with the sin, we all pay a price. It's not your life. You belong part of a community. Your faith is owned by the people around you. Just like mine is. Right? I can't sin in any kind of big way without hurting all of you some. I don't want to. Because I realize my faith belongs to you. And it's very important to me to live a life of faith for your benefit. That's what being a priest is all about, for someone else's benefit. So I'm going to be a priest, Peter says, for your benefit, which means I'm going to do my very best by God's grace to live out my life of faith in a way that draws you in. And now become a priest to you. That's what we should do as a church. Our faith is visible. Okay. Um, when you look in the Psalms, all the words for praise uh, have two common characteristics. By the way, there's only 20, there's about 20 words for praise in the Psalms. They all call for something to be done vocally, not silently. That's one of the characteristics. And they call for something to be done corporately, not privately. So the Old Testament model of praise and worship is a community the Old Testament knows nothing about individuals going off and praising God. That's a new concept that we've developed in our own culture. So think about that. Worship is done corporately. Now it starts individually, but it finds its expression corporately. Why? 
What's the purpose of this book? It's an act of service, but what's its purpose? Remember, God doesn't need your glory. Exactly. Worship, when you see it defined in Scripture, is there for the rest of the nations. No flashing lights. You've heard me say that. Our worship should convince the people around us that we are serious about our commitment to this God. That's its primary purpose. That's how God filled the earth with his glory. That's how he spoke his word. We've turned it into a private act for our own enjoyment. Its primary purpose is to reflect his glory to a lost people. By the way, Paul says in the Corinthian epistles, you're taking the offerings is unclean. When you put money in the basket, it's an expression of what you think about the gospel. So why do we take an offering? So that the unbelievers who walk into our group will say, wow, these people are really committed. Look how sacrificial they are. They really believe in this God. Look at their worship. They really believe in this God. So all the acts that we think of are there to help us fulfill our primary mission to be priests to a world that's lost and tired and doesn't get it and weary. So hopefully if you get nothing out of this class, that's one thing that I begin to slip in there is that our acts of service are designed to like that. We are priests always on behalf of God. Does that make sense? Testament doesn't know anything about images of worship. <clears throat> okay, that's all I'm going to say about the sacrifices. Uh, no, I'm going to say one more thing. The sacrifices, uh, it's not until you get to numbers that you can answer this question, but the sacrifices, the sin offerings, sin sacrifices are all modified by the phrase, if anyone sins unintentionally, they come off of the sacrifice. Okay? Which is defines most of our life. We're not, we don't start out, I, I don't know too many Christians that start, step up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to sin today on purpose because I really want to. That's not how we think about it. We go through life and we trip and fall and we slip and we make mistakes and we do that. That's what really happens, right? Okay. Uh, what happens to, it's not until you get to numbers when Moses, now they're wandering in the desert and he's probably reflecting on everything he just said to him about Leviticus. Hmm. He says, God, what happens to the, it's about numbers 15, I think. What happens to the person, and he says, uh, basically who shakes the right fist at you and sends out a rebellion? What does this happen to them? Because there's no sacrifice for the person who sins rebelliously. And God says, right, that person should be cut off. Euphemism for death. Right? You get a person who's rebellious, deal with them. Kill them. Now, not the Old Testament model. We don't do that in the New Testament. Everything changes. But still the same thing. You want to be rebellious? There's a cost to that. So now think about the people of the Old Testament that sinned that way. Okay? Achan stole the things under the ban at Jericho. Right? So they had to cast lots because they didn't know who it was. And God worked them down to Achan and his family um, because they had he had stolen some stuff, silver idols and things like that. Okay, now why didn't the rulers, why didn't the Moses and the elders say, go down and offer a sacrifice to the Lord? Because that was sin out of rebellion. Nothing accidental about it. So they stoned him. Because of it. What about Saul? When he, when he uh, contacted the witch at Endor, the medium, cured him, right? And she says, uh, he says, bring up who I tell you. And up comes Samuel, and she shrieks 
and she recognizes who he is. And, uh, and what did Samuel say to Saul? This very night, God has demanded your life. You're the king, and you've violated the rule. Right? What did Moses, what did he say to Moses when Moses struck the rock instead of spoke to it? He says, because you did this, you're dead now. I'm going to kill you. He said a little more eloquently than that. You're not going to enter the promised land. God took his life. He matured. He didn't do it right away, but the judgment was handed down that night, that very second. Because you blasphemed me in front of all the people, you're dead now. Couldn't have done that. So we have several examples of people, typically they're leaders, who have put themselves in positions of responsibility. In fact, I tell our elders, you sure you want to be an elder? Big responsibility. <coughs> and the cost is death. Okay, now when you fast forward into the New Testament, 1 John 5, um, <coughs> you should pray for people that are in sin. There is a sin that leads to death. I don't, I'm not saying you should pray for that sin, but he didn't tell us what it is. There is sin that leads to death, he told us. What is it? Analyze and follow. Okay? 1 Corinthians 11. The uh, people were abusing the Lord's Supper, and because of that, many of them grew sick, and many of them died. Okay? Because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. So he says, be careful when you take Lord's Supper. As Christians, don't bring judgment into your soul. Deal with your own issues internally. That's why often we give you space in order to do that. And we're commanding you. So if John says there is sin that leads to death, he didn't tell us what it is. I think that's a reflection back on the model in Numbers. You want to do that? You can do it. God's going to give you the freedom, but there's a price to pay for that. Or you get to Hebrews 10. For the one who goes on sinning willfully after receiving full knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That wording is right out of numbers about the Levitical sacrifices. There is no sacrifices for rebellious sin. There is none. You deal with God directly. So if your sin is out of weakness, which is the way we live our lives, then God is very content to let us deal with it as a people group. With leaders and all that. In your family, your children sin, he's glad to let you deal with it as parents. You want to shake your fist at God? You can do that. He says you can do it. So, all right, then he goes on to the diets in Leviticus 11. The primary purpose of the diets was holiness. It made them different than the surrounding nations. Why? Because we are the means by which he reflects his glory to the nations around us. You have the listing of the festivals in Leviticus 23. We just finished a series on that. All the festivals are listed. Passover, Pentecost, Festival of Booths, Day of Atonement. These are all designed to teach our people and the surrounding nations that we have a God who loves us to remember him. He wants us to live a holy life. So we will do that. We'll dance and, and laugh and sing. We'll do all that at our festivals. That's what the festivals were designed to do, to give us rest, much like our holidays. We get to rest. We get to dance. Several of the festivals, the, the rabbis, the other rabbis tell us that the music went 24 hours a day. Can you imagine an eight-day party where the music is going nonstop? You stop to nap and you get back up and you're dancing and singing the praise psalms, you know, the halal psalms, all those psalms. I mean, that just sounds, to me, sounds wonderful to get a break. And God promises, while you're doing that, I'll take care of all your animals, I'll take care of all your crops, you don't have to worry. You go party and worship me and you do it as a community so when the non-believers look on, they say, well, I, 
That's not what it's like when you worship our God. When I go to India and I do, um, <coughs> when I do like a church festival or something, I've done uh, two or three of those. Uh, the Hindus will line up around the outside and watch us all day long for three or four days. And we have cooking time and we have music and we have dancing time and they all watch us. It's just really wild. It's a little unnerving to have a, a whole line of Hindus just lined up. They'll just stand there. They'll stand there just like this. They won't move for eight hours. As long as we're there, they'll stand there. They won't move. And they'll just watch us. It's what we're doing. We're revealing the glory of the Lord by the way we celebrate. And that's what the festivals are designed to do. Okay, let's talk about numbers. Here's the theme of numbers. Easy way to remember it. God has time and the desert has sand. That should help you remember numbers. God has time. He's not in a hurry. And the desert's got plenty of sand. Wander away. The first generation said no. The second generation said yes. They're going to obey God. If they had said no, God would have waited until the third generation or the fourth generation or however many it took before he found a people that said, we will obey you. The work of God will be done, but he's very content to wait until you say yes or give you what to hang on to. That's what Numbers teaches us. The desert's got a lot of sand, and we can wander. This book, Numbers, is about finishing well. Remember, the Israelites were regenerated, but they were rebellious. Boy, that's a contemporary message, isn't it? Regenerated people that like to do have our own way and do our own thing. Boy, this actually fits. God continues to love the people whom he chastens. And he wants us to finish well. All right, we have an issue of numbers. It's right off the bat, okay? Numbers chapter 1. This chapter gives the list of men called to military service for the victory march from Mount Sinai to Canaan. It's an honor to be mentioned. So it goes down all these tribes and families and starts mentioning them. And it tells us this is the victory march from Sinai to Canaan. Here's the problem. Numbers 146 identifies 603,500 fighting men who are numbered for war. For much of the church, this is extrapolated out to anywhere between 2 and 6 million people in the nation. Okay, that's what we're told. Between 2 and 6 million people. Well, here are the facts. And you'll begin to understand the problem. We do know that Israel had experienced phenomenal growth according to Exodus 1 and 7. Exodus 1 and 7. But then he tells us in Deuteronomy 7 that he chose Israel not because they were the largest, but they were the smallest of the nations. Okay? So he chose Israel specifically because they were the smallest so he could demonstrate his glory. During this time, the Akkadians and the Assyrians often boasted armies as large as 100,000 people and no scholar today believes it. They were boasting. We don't have a record of any army like that. You don't see the problem? 605,000 people? The Egyptian army, as best we can tell, was probably no larger than 20,000 people fighting with them. The entire population of Canaan would have been below a million. 
Jericho is only six to eight acres large. Why would they be frightened? If, if they have 605,000 fighting men, why would they be frightened? They'd be six times the size of the entire population of Canaan, their army. We just don't have a record of that. Plus, there are many places in the desert journey where that wouldn't have commonly existed many people. Today, today, there's about five and a half million Jews living in this country. See the problem? There weren't 605,000 of them. If the Israelites were this large, they would have feared neither the Egyptian army nor the Canaanite population. They just wouldn't have feared it. The numbers are simply too large. So this leads, I told you numbers would be interesting tonight. Right off the bat, we got a problem. I love problems in Scripture. So this uh, scholars today, especially those who do not adopt a conservative stance towards Scripture, say, see, that's proof that it's not inspired by God. It's written by humans. There's some, there's some possibilities to understand it, and I'll give you some of them, the way people approach it. Maybe it's a copyist error. The numbers are incorrect. Um, there is an actual technical issue in Hebrew where this is a possibility where we misunderstand the word thousands and it could refer to the idea of chief or social units. For example, 59,300 might be 59 officers and 300 soldiers. That's a possible way of working our way through it. But I'm going to give you a different, a theological reason why God would have done that. It's a rhetorical use of numbers. You see, in Semitic language and Semitic thought, they use numbers to communicate a variety of things. We see it, for example, when Saul comes back and David after they defeated the Philistines and their people are dancing and singing. Saul has killed his thousands. David has ten thousands. All right. Saul got really angry because David got more glory than he did. Did David kill ten thousand people? Not in your life. So they use numbers to communicate um, hyperbole, if you will, communicate power or glory. Um, the Egyptians demonstrated a pattern of deliberately inflating their battle dead by a factor of 10. To demonstrate how powerful they were. Where did Moses come from? Egypt. What if he's using that device this way? What if he's really saying to the people, with God on our side, it's as if we have 605,000 fighting men. What if that's the theological statement that he's making? He's not trying to give you an accurate number. First of all, what's the probability of us having a rounded number? It may be that he's communicating to his own people. Remember what he said? Don't be afraid. The Lord will give to you to put his spear within you. You can trust him. With God on our side, you have nothing to be afraid of. There's no army in the world that can stop us. Just a thought. He celebrated. Moses was projecting God's continued faithfulness by copying God's rhetorical exaggeration. You remember the sand of the seashore, so David said. So he's using that model to help the people understand. Moses is communicating that compared to Canaan, we are invincible with God on our side. So he uses rhetorical exaggeration to make sense of numbers. So numbers is a story. Numbers 22, just a couple more minutes. I'm nearing to my time. 
Numbers 22 is the story of Balaam. Do you remember the story of Balaam? Uh, Balaam and his donkey. He's, uh, he's called to come. Uh, he's called by the enemies of Israel to come pronounce a curse on Israel. And instead, he pronounces a blessing because God doesn't give him a choice. Remember that story? All right. These chapters are extraordinary in every way you can measure because they don't deal with Moses or his life or the Israelites. We're not even sure how they made it into the Hebrew Bible. What's unique about them is they're giving us a viewpoint from the enemy camp. We're inside the enemy camp uh, as they're trying desperately to pay Balaam enough uh, money to curse Israel. And every time he opens his mouth, he blesses Israel. It's really a great story. It reveals that God is faithful. This, This is why I think it's in the canon in the book of Numbers. It reveals to the Israelites You don't know what's going on in an enemy camp, but God does know. So God's going to give us a snapshot of what's happening behind enemy lines so you can trust with God. He is faithful. So it reveals that God is faithful regardless of the murmurings and rebellion of Israel because they continue to murmur during this whole time. It reveals that God is not done with Israel. He's not changed his mind. So it gives them a glimpse of what God is doing outside. By the way, that's going to be true when you get to the prophets. In the prophets, you read all these prophetic indictments against all the other nations. The other nations never heard those indictments. They were given to Israel. Right? So to Babylon and to the Assyrians, he, he gives crushing prophecies. But that was for the nation of Israel's benefit because they are the people that represent him to the world. In other words, he's working hard to keep building their faith. Because we are people that like to represent him. We do. Which gives us a sense of what we're all about here. What we're all about. We know the truth and the world around us doesn't. Okay? Shouldn't be arrogant about it. It should make us compelled to live our lives of faith. Because we know what's going to happen to these people if they don't turn. Right? We are the only means which God uses to refresh his world. So <clears throat> Balaam represented the best that paganism had to offer. He was the very best. And he could not curse Israel without God's permission. It's just a, it's a very, very intri- intriguing story. Uh, let's see. One more thing I want to talk about. Numbers 27. <clears throat> One of my favorite passages in the Bible because it shows several things. It shows that the law was not rigid and was a dynamic sort of thing. Numbers 27, Zelophehad's daughters. Say that ten times real fast. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Pephar, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. Now that's important. He's establishing which tribe they're in here. Okay? The reason why he did that was because the land was given to the tribes. So you realize that when God promised land, this is they were the first nation in world history to be given private property. Every other country is owned by the emperor, the king, and whoever the ruler of the city-state was. You got to farm it, pay taxes. But with Israel, God says, I own everything, but I'm going to give it out to each of you. You get a parcel, you get a parcel, you get a parcel, you get a parcel, you get a parcel. You get private property. Okay, now fast forward several thousand years. Effective environmental policy. 
one of the prerequisites to effective environmental policy is learning to start small. Necessary. When's the last time you rented a car and you changed oil, washed it, and waxed it before you turned it back on? Right? It's like communism doesn't work. So environmental policy starts. One of the assumptions behind effective environmental policy is you own it. If you own it, you're going to take care of it. It's the best thing you could do. So if we are stewards of God's creation, he wants us to care for it. The best thing to do is give it away because we're going to take care of it. So Israel, the Israelites were the first nation to practice tribal property. Okay? All right. So now here are the rules. I'm going to give, this is one tribe. Here's your land. Boom, 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 boom. Here's a tribe over here. Here's your land. Boom, 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 boom. If you look in the back of your Bibles, if you have a study Bible, it'll show you all the tribes and where they were. The only rule is you can do whatever you want. You just can't, you can't, you can't give your land to them. It belongs to you. Okay? In fact, within the land, you can't give your land to him. Now, if you get into financial trouble, I realize that you may have to sell it to him because you were foolish. So he gives you money. The year of Jubilee, at the end of 50 years, you get it back. So land always reverts back to the owner. God's serious. I want you all to own the land. All right. Now, in a patriarchal society, here are the rules under the law. You're a woman. Okay? So um, if your family owns land and your father dies, the land goes to your brothers. You can't own it. If you don't have any brothers, it passes out of your family to your uncle, your dad's brother. The five daughters of Zelophehad, they went to Moses and said, time out. This isn't fair. Okay, They didn't quite express it this way, but they said, why should we be penalized because our dad sinned and we don't have brothers? In other words, we're women. Why do we have to pay the price? Moses, being the courageous man that he is, says, hmm, I better go to God on this one. So he says, what do I do? And God says, they have a valid case. So let's change the rules, some inheritance rules. If, if your dad dies, the land passes to your brothers. If there are no brothers, it passes to you. If there are no children, if you're not alive, then it goes to your parents, okay, your dad's brother. He changed the law. Here's what's amazing about that. He changed the Mosaic law before they ever entered the promised land and had a chance to carry it out. So you have the laws of inheritance revision one, and then you have the laws of inheritance revision two. They never fulfilled revision one. They immediately jumped to revision two, which told you, which is one of the examples that the law was not meant to be a rigid code. It's meant to set them apart from the world around them. So when the five daughters stood up and they said, okay, we don't like this, God said, yeah, you got a valid case. Good, I'm glad. Now let's change the rules. Now, you've seen the movie out of the Jane Austen series, you know, Pride and Prejudice, for example. All right, Great Britain in the 19th century was based on the original inheritance laws. Women couldn't own property. Somehow they overlooked the fact that God revamped their law before they even entered the land. By the way, when you get to Numbers 36, the five daughters, <laughs> they're my heroes. Okay, they appear on the scene again. The men are trying to tell them who to marry because arranged marriage was a part of the ancient world. And they said, no, uh-uh, we're not going to do what you want. We're going to marry whoever we want. Moses, being courageous, says, I better take this one back to God. <laughs> he goes back to God, and God says the exact same thing. They have a valid case. Let them marry whoever they want. Only s stay within the tribe. So these daughters of Zelophehad are one of the early examples of gender issues and gender role issues and what women were capable allowed to do under the law. And in both cases, God changed the law when they rebelled.
and they stood up and said, we don't like it. That's what it says. Change it. So it, it gives us a glimpse, an early, early glimpse, 1500 BC, you know, 1450 thereabouts, of of the changing, some of the changing natures of gender roles, but it also gives us a glimpse into the purpose of the law. The law was not there to be a law code to live or die by. It was there to set you apart from the surrounding nations. Why? Because we are God's primary way of revealing himself. That's why. And that's what the law was designed to do. Okay? All right. 805. Two weeks, we'll pick up Deuteronomy. The last book of the Pentateuch. Once we get through the Pentateuch, we'll begin to move faster. Partly the books get smaller. <laughs> and partly we can start grouping them together. And uh, they talk about the same thing. In the first five books, hopefully you're getting that they lay out this theology from which all of the Bible unfolds, including our lives today. Everything we do today. Okay, so two weeks? Great.